Hello and welcome to Open School of Business. Today I'm excited to introduce you to Dan Eds. He's the leadership expert and uh, someone who I'm particularly interested in because he used to be a project manager for many years like me and now he's running his own business um, and he's a managing director at Praxis Solutions. Uh, welcome, Dan, and please uh, introduce yourself and what you would like to talk about today. Sure. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. So, um, as you mentioned, my name is Dan Eds. Uh, I'm the founder and president of Praxis Solutions. Um, <clears throat> and um, the, the, the story of how I got into leadership, um, training, consulting, et cetera, really goes back to about four years ago when I began to ask myself this question, how do high-performing organizations approach the practice of leadership? And that sounds simple enough, but it was what really, uh, what was the trigger was too many times in my consulting practice, I would come into an organization and they'd say, we want you to fix this or fix that or fix that team fix that group, help them with their process. We have these issues with cost recovery and revenues, and, and we don't want you to fix that too. And uh, many times in the preparation for these engagements, I would ask a question like, okay, what's your, what is your unique competitive advantage? Or tell me about your staff and, 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 and tell me about the culture of your organization. And invariably people would say, you know, the senior leaders would say things like, Oh, our staffers are, they're, they're fabulous. Uh, we can't, we have a wonderful staff. Um, they are our most uh, critical competitive advantage. And I said, okay, that's great. So then I would actually start working with their staff. And there is a massive disconnect between the way the senior leaders understood their employees and the employees themselves. Too many times I, I found employees who were um, discouraged, they felt underappreciated, they were exhausted. They would tell me things like, you know, we've gone through this exercise before. I don't know that you're going to, you know, provide us any better solutions than what we've had in the past. And of course, I'd say, well, yeah, that was the past, but I'm different. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to fix this thing. And sometimes it, it got fixed, and, 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 but sometimes you come back six months later, nothing has changed. Um, one of the critical um, experiences that really got to me was I had just finished a project for a very large state agency. This agency um, regulated 450,000 healthcare providers. And by any measure, they were a mess. And, uh, and so working with them for probably eight or nine months, we had a pretty, pretty solid roadmap on um, uh, how to improve their, their operations. And uh, it was gonna take about 18 months to implement. But as I'm, I'm having my last conversation with the deputy director, I'm ready to walk out the door. I've got my coat on, I've got my computer bag in hand, my hand is on the door, I'm ready to leave. And she says, almost in a tone of confession, she says, you know, I don't even tell my friends where I work anymore. I turn around. I said, why? She, she said, 
it's just too embarrassing. But that spurred me to start asking this question, well, how do high performing organizations approach the practice of leadership? And then when I got looking at it, I found out that they approach leadership extremely different um, than traditional organizations. Uh, and uh, what was your method on finding that out? Great, great question. So um, there was a, a sort of a sub question that I was looking for. And that was, I was wondering, do they, do they approach it in any way that looks like a system or systematic or, or in a way that's, that's systemic? In other words, they have a specific way that they do leadership. And uh, which meant obviously that I had to figure out, well, what is the system? And I had to, so I had to read every book I could find on, on systems thinking. And um, as a project manager, you, you recognize that, that there are various systems going on within an organization. Sometimes they're competing. And as the project manager, you have to mitigate and you have to, you know, uh, deal with all of those compete, sometimes competing systems. So that was the first thing I had to figure out was, well, what is a system? And then I had to figure out, well, what is it that I'm looking for? And what I really ended up doing um, was just, was really looking at levels of employee engagement. Um, I, I, I intentionally steered away from looking at financial returns um, as, as a measure of high performance because um, not, too many, not too many organizations are gonna open up their financials to you. Um, and uh, so it's just simpler and easier. And in, in the end, I really thought that looking at levels of employee engagement was a better way of looking at high performance because you can't keep a workforce highly engaged for a long period of time just by pure inspiration and rhetoric. Um, you, it's, it's a different model. When people are coming to work, they're highly engaged with their organization, not for a year or two, but for three, four, five, eight, 10, 15, 20 years or longer. That, that takes a different kind of different kind of leadership. All right. So when you um, found this system on how to retain and engage your employees, uh, was it somewhat unexpected or do you think you saw that all along uh, um, in the engagement you saw? And then yeah. um, what was the impact once you started applying? I didn't know what I was going to find. I barely knew what I was looking for. I was really just thinking, okay, high performing organizations, organizations that perform at a high level for a long period of time. How do they, how do they do leadership? So um, I had, when I started the project, I had just finished a project with um, a kind of a small healthcare organization. So I, I was looking in healthcare and one, because you can get the data fairly easily much of the data in uh, in healthcare is public information so it's it's not hard to get um, but then when I started to, to, to understand what a leadership system looked like then I started seeing them all over the place uh, one of the more unusual systems that I leadership systems that I found um, and actually I researched was the New York Mafia um, 
not exactly the, uh, the, the, the kind of results that most of us want, but they were highly effective for 50 years. They were incredibly effective. Right. And when I got looking at, at their organization, they had a very well-defined system of leadership. And of course, if you decided to break ranks from that system, it was kind of deadly. <clears throat> so there was high degree of, of uh, uh, reason to follow the system. But I found the same thing in, in, um, in, uh, in a number of healthcare organizations where they were p- performing at a very high level for a long period of time. Um, they had very well-defined systems of leadership. Uh, to the point where they found it difficult to hire managers from outside the organization because <clears throat> they'd have to retrain them. Yes, yeah. um, just a one, you know, real simple example. It's uh, one of the, the organizations I profile in the book. Um, right now, I think they've been recognized uh, for, I think, nine consecutive years as one of the safest hospitals in the country. Some have even speculated it's one of the safest hospitals in the world, which, you know, may not sound like a big deal. You you just automatically think that a hospital is a safe place. The reality is that the latest data says that there's 161,000 people that die every year due to avoidable accidents in hospitals. And it, it actually makes accidents in hospitals a leading cause of death in America. So safety is a big deal. What hospital is that? It's called Virginia Mason Medical Center. It actually happens to be here in Seattle. Um, I wasn't looking for it. One day I was just looking at, at data on hospital safety. And um, these data, are, they're, they're published every year. So I, you know, I, I went back a year and, oh, there's Virginia Mason Medical Center. Interesting. I, you know, I knew it was a, it was a common name. And so then I, I went back to the next year, you know, going backwards. Oh, Virginia Mason Medical Center. And uh, so, I, you know, I'm going back, you know, two, three, four, five, six, you know, eight years. Okay, now I'm, now I'm thinking they're doing something special, really unique, and they're doing it for a long period of time. So I reached out to them and, and had the, the wonderful um, uh, uh, opportunity to spend a half a day with one of their senior leaders. And she took me through the whole, the, the, the main, they have a main hospital in downtown Seattle, took me through the whole, the whole hospital, um, had a chance to sit out, to sit in on a, what they call a Friday afternoon report out, where the various teams that are working on process improvement initiatives um, come into one place big auditorium, video screen, streaming, and they, they, they explain what they did in their project and what worked and what didn't work and um, what they would do differently next time and, and how they hope to improve their, their systems and their processes. So uh, one of the interesting things that I saw about them, every high-performing organization that I found looks at people, money, and information differently. They see those three, let's call them resources, as a resource that they can, um, if, they, if they manage them correctly, they can increase the value of those resources continuously. Average organizations sees those resources as assets that have to be managed. And it's, a, it's the difference is nuanced 
But if you take people, for example, people can be either be managed, which is a nice way of saying, well, controlled, or they can be viewed as a resource. But as a resource, that means I want the value of that resource to grow over time. So this, this hospital that I, that I referenced, when I was speaking with them, what I discovered, and actually when I saw it, I was stunned. It was, it was, I mean, I've been into a lot of organizations and worked with hundreds of organizations. When I saw what they were doing to develop the resource of their people, um, I, was, I was so shocked that um, I actually made an appointment to talk with a woman at Harvard University who had been kind of Oh, I, I refer to her as sort of a coach and mentor, although I'm not she, sure she has any idea that she's done that. Um, woman by the name of Dr. Barbara Kellerman, one of the world's leading experts on, on organizational leadership. Um, I, I got her on the phone. I said, this is what I saw. Can you, can you explain it to me? I said, I've never seen anything like this. She knew exactly what I was talking about, referenced a, a new book that had been published by Harvard called An Everyone Culture, highly recommended. Mm -hmm. um, but this healthcare organization had come to the conclusion that people represented a resource that if they can, if they could develop that resource and the full capacity of that resource, not just making doctors better doctors and nurses better nurses and med techs better med techs, but if they can, if they could help create a better human being, one who is more self-confident one who has felt more self-empowered, that had a direct value, direct impact on their desire to create a safe hospital. And it's really pretty simple when you think about it. Um, if, if someone sees a problem, they're in the OR and they see a potential error, who is more likely to speak up? Someone who's self-confident or someone who is insecure. I think simple logic would say someone who is self-confident is the one who's gonna speak up. So they made this connection between self-confident employees and workplace safety. And it works. And, and, and they, they train every leader specifically how to develop a more self-confident workforce empowering uh leaders um empowering other leaders and also having that environment where if you're the messenger of bad news you're not getting shot you're getting rewarded for that precisely <laughs> precisely i think in a lot of corporations people who are you know pointing out to issues uh trying to see all the risks they're labeled as whiners sometimes and people try to shy away from being labeled such ways right. and right. Yep. and don't want to even talk about the problems because right. what they they need to report high performing results they yep. need to say yeah we're good we're on schedule yep. we're on budget right. and right. Yep. especially if there is a disconnect between senior management and the leadership and, mm -hmm. and the people who are actually exhausted and yep. working nonstop yep. and seeing all these problems, but when they speak about it, they get punished instead of rewarded. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So it does definitely 
show that culture of where yep. if you're actually someone pointing out the, for the problems, you're a good person because then we know what is the problem and we can work together on solving right. them. And right. it's a, just such a great example, but I can't help, but <laughs> I'm just curious about the whole New York mafia thing. Oh. Like where are the similarities? Well, between, it's, you know, this great yeah. safe hospital and right. the way they're empowering their right. employees right. to be self-confident and discover issues yeah. versus, um, you know. Well, it, it really, it really comes down to the structure of a system. So as, as you probably know, anytime you're designing a system and it doesn't really matter if it's a, if it's a digital system, if it's a, if it's a, you know, if it's, it's a, um, um, a healthcare delivery system, or if it's a system of, of, of um, engaging employees or customers, <clears throat> the first step is, is to identify, well, what's the purpose of the system? What is the system supposed to produce? So this hospital determined um, that uh, it was going to operate off of a off of a single value of respect, respect for the work, respect for the patient, and respect for the worker. And so, uh, if you're a leader or a manager in that organization, you know exactly what you are supposed to do. Your, your, one of your primary tasks is to produce a culture based on respect. Um, and so you treat patients with respect, you treat workers with respect, and you treat the work itself with respect. So a real simple example of how they, how they operate. The, the main hospital is about a 10-story building, and it's built into a hill. And... Um, from the top floor, probably the top two or three floors, uh, there's an expansive view of downtown Seattle. You've got Puget Sound, a harbor below that. You've got snow-capped mountains to the east. To the south, you have Mount Rainier, 14,000-foot, you know, snow-capped volcano. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful site. Based on a value of respect, where do you think the executive offices might be located. No, it should be somewhere down. I think <laughs> the basement. Or exactly, is the opposite of what a lot of corporations would do. Exactly, they are in the basement, precisely, because uh, based on a value of respect for the patients, the patients get the view, not the executive leadership. Um, also based on a value of, of valuing money and what money can produce. An executive office suite is a very low value uh, piece of real estate. It's expensive if you put it up on the top floor, um, right. but uh, the, the, the best work of leadership is not done with people sitting in their offices. Leaders do their best work when they're out with their employees, with their teams, working with them one-on-one, -on -one, not when they're sitting in an office. Right. So uh, they, they, they put the executive offices in the basement intentionally because of that. So the, the connection to the mafia is uh, what I discovered in looking at them was they too, they too had, a, had a purpose 
um, an output of their of their of their organization, which was to protect the family. Everything was designed to protect the family. And if you chose not to protect the family, you would probably be killed. Now it was it was a very different kind of operation, obviously. Um, but they started from, from the, the foundation of protecting the family. And they had a whole series of rules, routines, identified behaviors. And it was things that most of us would find disgusting, but they had certain rules, like because they were all men, um, there were rules about women that you could you know, play around with. Um, it could not, the rule says you can't mess around with the wife of another family member. All other women though, fair game. Now, obviously that kind of thing makes most of us disgusted, but it was a rule that reinforced their value of protecting the family at all costs. And the and wives of the gang members would also feel like they're valued. Exactly. In that sort of situation. And they right. feel as a part of the family, therefore they're less encouraged in and doing the legal thing and, and turning exactly. them over. In a, in a perverse way, they were performing exactly the way their system expected them to perform. And so when you think about a hospital, they start out with this core purpose of respect. And I found the exact same thing in organizations as small as an elementary, elementary school. Um, this school had gone from the lowest performing elementary school in a district of 25,000 students and 18 different elementary schools. In five years, they're performing at the highest level uh, elementary school in five years, which means um, higher academic achievement in their case for a um, rather diverse blend, ethnic and economic diverse blend of students. And when that wasn't good enough, they actually brought it up and took it up another notch and became one of the few schools in the nation to actually close the achievement gap, which is the academic gap between rich and poor, minority and majority, et cetera. Um, not too many schools do that. They did it. They're doing it right now. And um, huge, huge accomplishment. When I, when I asked the principal, I said, so this is the question I asked everybody. There is one or two words that described your approach to leadership, what would they be? And um, she immediately said, well, this won't be very popular, but love and grace. And I thought, oh, how cute. You know, these 450 <laughs> little kids, they have a principal who loves them. I thought, nice. <laughs> and um, she read my mind. She said, that's not the way I'm thinking about that. She said, I use those words because they remind me that I could have a difficult conversation with a team member before it blows up, but do it in a spirit of love and grace. And then she starts talking to me about collaboration. And what I realized is that the analogy that I use in the book is that um, a system is like a DNA molecule. And you've seen the, you know, the classic example of a DNA molecule, it has the structure of the double helix. And when she was talking to me about love and grace and collaboration, those were her double helix, the two sides of, of, her, of her organizational DNA. Love and grace was the pathway to a culture of collaboration. And that collaboration, by setting it up that way, it, it, it 
it, it actually moved beyond just the walls of the school. <clears throat> um, it actually moved into community groups where they realized, well, collaboration is good for us as an institution. Well, maybe that also means we should be collaborating with other neighborhood groups and community groups. And maybe it means we should improve the collaboration with the families of our students. Yeah. Um, and so if you go to that school today, there is a once a month movie night uh, that the PTSA invites families to, to watch a family movie at school, which doesn't sound like a very big deal until you realize that the, 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 the families living in this neighborhood are, are intimidated by education. Usually their own lack of education makes them a little intimidated and fearful about speaking with a teacher or going to the school. It's a place they don't feel safe and welcomed. But by having a movie night, the school becomes, becomes a community asset. And right. if you go to that school a week before, you know, school is to start in September, you'll find uh, 50 to 75 volunteers working at that school all day Saturday. They're pressure washing sidewalks. They're cleaning rooms where medically fragile uh, children will be spending their days. They're, they're cleaning them. And they will be working with teachers, helping them get their rooms ready for, for school in a week. Four or five adults can, can do as much as a single teacher can do in a week. And so, you know, that frees a whole week of work up for the teacher, which means that he or she can now spend more time preparing student, you know, preparing for students as opposed to, you know, preparing a classroom. Yes. Uh, education is by far one of my favorite uh, topics. And one, once you were talking about this elementary school, I couldn't help but remember mine. And we always did spend all the holidays there with the parents and the teachers. The whole culture back in Kazakhstan is that even prom, we mm. celebrated with our parents. Okay. No one gets a date. Everyone just comes in the way they came in in elementary school <laughs> with their parents and yeah. spend the night eating, dancing together and all right. that stuff. So it, it is really great about the whole you know, the love and grace and mm -hmm. respect. I mm -hmm. picked up those three aspects mm -hmm. and it reminded me about communication management because mm -hmm. if you're trying to um, talk to a person, whether about improving their behavior or about some new changes that are coming along, mm -hmm. if you're talking to them uh, without opening them up first mm -hmm. you're talking to a wall pretty right. much there is no there, there the communication is not happening there's nothing to manage at that point right, right. so right. first of all the first step is opening up the person building the relationship mm -hmm. where you're able to talk to them right. about anything that difficult or or not so difficult but still the the bridge needs to be there Yep. And it seems like all these high-performing organizations are about building that bridge uh, where information flows freely and yep. people listen to each other because they love each other, they right. respect each other. Right. Um, 
and it's just so great. Well, you you just used a word um, that um, I'm uncomfortable using in the context of business, and that's love. It just it just makes me it just makes me a little uncomfortable. And yet, Aaron, this this principal, she said yes, quite without apology. Um, I want my I want my team to experience love and grace. Now, the interesting thing about that conversation was that just a few, uh, probably a month or two before I had this, this conversation with this elementary school principal, <clears throat> I happened to have the opportunity to interview um, a retired four-star general of the U.S. Army. General McCaffrey, um, when he retired after 32 years, some speculated he was the most highly decorated general to have ever worn the uniform. Um, he uh, certified war hero. He has three purple hearts for wounds in combat. Um, he's led men into combat. Um, when he retired from the army, he went on to serve uh, as, a, as a cabinet member in the Clinton administration. So he knows there's, if there's anything about leadership he doesn't know about, it's not worth knowing. And um, when I asked him the same question I asked everybody, which is, if there's one or two words that you would use to describe the army's approach to leadership, what would they be? And he immediately said, we practice servant leadership. It still kind of gets me choked up, but he, in the, his next breath, he's talking to me about love. His, his commanding officer in the first Gulf War, so we're talking about 1991, guy by the name of General Norman Schwarzkopf. Uh, General McCaffrey was telling me, he said, um, I was just one of his divisional commanders, like small time. Well, I, he's, he's the commander of a, of a, of a his command is 26,000 soldiers, um, 4,600 vehicles, 100 aircraft. He could wage war on a major scale almost any place in the world. And yet he says, my senior officer, General Norman Schwarzkopf, he said he loved soldiers. And his words were, it wasn't just a thing. He said he actually loved soldiers. And his words was, he said, he, he said, I was just one of his divisional commanders, but he actually loved me. But then when I got looking at it further, he wasn't talking about a warm, gushy, sentimental, emotional love. He was talking about love as a verb, love in action. So the army has, um, people don't realize it, but the army really is a value-driven organization. One of their core values is selfless service. And it's not just, it's not just a, you know, words on a nice, on a poster for the wall. They take it extremely seriously and they define selfless service as putting the welfare of the nation, the army, and your, and your subordinates above your own. So when General McCaffrey was explaining that to me, I said, so how does the army um, support, train, and reinforce the practice of servant leadership? And he immediately said, there's three ways. He said, there's more, but three, three simple ways. One is 
um, when a mission, when a team is going off on a mission and they're loading into the helicopter, who do you think is the last person to get on that helicopter? I'll answer the question for you. It's the highest performing, it's, it's the highest ranking officer. Now they're not just being polite. They're boarding that helicopter last for a very specific reason. Um, when they land at their, where they're, where they're heading, and if it's a hot landing zone, which means bullets are flying, who is the first one to get off that helicopter, symbolically putting themselves in harm's way first? It's the highest ranking officer because they operate on this value of selfless service. So, so if you're in that helicopter and you're the highest ranking officer, your job is to put the welfare of everybody else above your own welfare. And that means putting yourself in harm's way first. And when you're leaving that landing zone or leaving to go on the mission, symbolically, symbolically, you are the last one to be in a position of risk. Um, right. And, you know, another simple way was uh, you've got, you know, soldiers eating breakfast or lunch or dinner and they're going through it to cafeteria. Who goes through the cafeteria line last? The highest ranking officer. <laughs> it's the highest yeah. ranking officer. That's, it's, not, it's not just be, by, because of being polite. It's because it supports the practice of servant leadership and putting the welfare of your subordinates above your own. So if food runs out, the yeah. subordinates get the food, the officers don't. So how, how do you think, what would be the, cult, the culture like in our organizations of any size, if every leader and manager was trained, mentored, and coached to put the welfare of, let's say, their customers and the company and their subordinates above their own welfare, we would yeah. radically, radically transform our organizations and, I think, produce more innovation, more customer value, um, and, and, and people would be lining up at the door to do business with you. Um, I, actually, one of the manufacturing companies I profile in the book is organizations that, that, has, that does that, and they literally have customers waiting in line to do business with them. Yeah, and I think uh, even when I mentor entrepreneurs in my um, practice, I always say the more people in your organization, like as you scale, um, you have to treat them as equal because as an entrepreneur, every new mind that enters your organization, they can create something that will be of immense value. Yep. Even yep. could be much better idea than your initial idea. Because if you're the one coming up with ideas and giving orders and giving out tasks, making the plans and, you mm -hmm. know, being a, a, um, a, a standard manager, mm -hmm. then uh, you will grow only within your potential. But if you give the people so, the power to do things that they think is relevant, then you can take advantage of all this creative power of 10 people, 20 people, of however yep. many you have in your organization. So 
I think that is the biggest mistake managers make when they think these people are just the tools and instruments and getting your vision done, whereas these are human beings. And well, you, you're 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 as we say, you're hitting the nail on the head, and you're explaining it perfectly. And and one of the things that I I, I challenge people about is when you treat people as a resource. Um, and you can capture that innate ability to create, to innovate, to transform, to problem solve, and you can capture that additional value in, in your people, what does it cost? Nothing. Yeah. It's absolutely nothing because it walks in the door every day. And if you're paying someone to put, you know, a round peg in a round hole, that additional value that they bring with them doesn't cost you a penny more. It only means that you have to behave as a leader or manager. You have to behave in a little different way. And, uh, and to scale that, you know, it, it just, to scale that idea from, let's say it's a, it's a new startup company of 10 people, um, to scale that to a company of 1,000 people or 10,000 people or 50,000 people, you can't do that by talking to people, to talking to leaders one at a time. You, you can't bring in, you know, if you have a company of 10,000 employees and you have a thousand leaders, you can't, you can't scale that kind of behavior, that kind of culture by talking to leaders one at a time, giving them some kind of a lecture-based course. It doesn't work. You actually have to have a system of leadership, a specific way of leading so that every leader knows that they're leading to, to a specific end. Um, and, and that's what the Army has done. Uh, they start teaching servant leadership from the first day of boot camp. And uh, when uh, I asked, I, when I brought up the subject of training with, with the general, he said that when he, when he became a one-star general, the army required him to go to a nine month school and how to execute the requirements of a one-star general. Not a, not a little simple lecture-based, you know, online course, yeah. nine months school. When he became a two-star, three-star, four-star, each additional star required another nine month school. And I'm thinking, who teaches a four-star general how to be a four-star general? That's as high as you go. <laughs> but, um, but they, they, you know, the Army teaches, coaches, trains, and mentors in servant leadership, starting from the first day of boot camp. And, um, and the high-performing organizations, you know, I, I mentioned this, this hospital, they don't hire too many managers from, from outside the organization because they, they literally have to retrain them. Yeah. Um, and, and, and also, if you think about it, their values respect. Therefore, having their own people being promoted makes more sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, just one simple thing that they do that um, really kind of blew me away. Um, you know, the traditional model of leadership says, um, I'm, I'm the problem solver. And most leaders get promoted because of their ability to solve problems. In this hospital, um, you are actually um, trained and coached not to be a problem solver. 
So if, 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 if I'm working for you and I'm having this problem and I come to you and say, I need help with this problem, your job is to not solve it for, problem, solve it for me because that would be disrespectful of my place in the organization as the frontline worker who is the most qualified to understand and solve the problem. Your job is to coach me, maybe mentor me. You could help me think about the problem, frame the problem, understand you know, who are the other processes and people and, and, and organizations and divisions within the organization that may be impacted by, by my solution, but you're not to solve it for me. And, uh, and the other thing is that if I was to come to you and say, I, I walk into your office and I say, I've got this problem, that would be an indication that you as my, as my manager, you're not doing your job because your job is not to be sitting in your office. Your job, and even if I said I have a problem, your job is to get out of your chair and you come to my workstation and speak with me and listen to me or my team. Um, I asked when I asked my tour guide, I said, so what about the, the open door policy? She says, we don't believe in them. She said, uh, to this extent, if, it, if an open door policy is required, it means that the manager or the leader is not doing their job because their job is to be working one-on-one -on -one with their team. And if someone has a problem, their job is to go to that, go to that worker at their workstation. Because mm -hmm. most that, likely the problem is involved somewhere there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. So um, about your own company, uh, how many people do you have and um, what are the dynamics there? What are the things that, are most uh, pressing and how do you yeah. deal with them? Well, the company is uh, basically just me. And when I'm doing engagements, I bring other, other associates on kind of where they fit. It's a very traditional model of a consulting um, consultancy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I, when, I, when I need various people, I bring them in. Um, I'm actually uh, completely uh, transitioning the company right now. Um, for years, I've been doing you know, basic um, process improvement, organizational improvement work, did a lot, done a lot of lean engagements. Um, and um, I'm actually uh, transitioning the whole thing right now to working with organizations and, and helping them build their cultures. Um, and that, that happens because you build a culture through your leadership and, um, and you can't, you have to build, you build a culture through a designed system of leadership which is what I found in doing the research. So I'm, I'm transitioning everything that I'm doing right now. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of scary. Um, and I'm, you know, many ways um, I'm going after a whole new uh, different client base. So I'm doing things like podcasts and, and um, you know, doing things on LinkedIn and every, every, every place I could, I could find someone who will, who will give me a chance to, to talk about it. But uh, my passion really is to, when, when you see cultures, organizational cultures, where people are respected, they're valued, um, their voices heard. It's not, uh, it's not a moral argument. Lots of, there's lots of people that, that talk, well, it's moral to treat people with respect. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it's, a, it's, it's also an economic argument that when you, as you just pointed out, when you can capture 
that innate intrinsic value of people uh, uh, for problem solving, for creativity, for innovation, when you could capture that and bring it into the organization, you exponentially multiply the value you're delivering to your, to your customers. And um, uh, I saw it enough in my, in my research that I thought, I want to spend the rest of my life doing this. Yeah. And I think it's the right time because, you know, in Deming's time, the manufacturing was booming. So Mm -hmm. therefore process improvement, uh, Kaizen and lean practices were very much in demand. Mm-hmm. And it seems like in our age of information and where people are engaged um, in a very independent way with their work, mm-hmm. this is a, a more popular topic, I would mm-hmm. say, and mm-hmm. definitely more uh, invasive and um, more impactful, therefore, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of companies, they already have their processes and, you know, I don't know if that's the case because you've done process improvement. Have you seen the demand for those type of engagements uh, decrease over time uh, because they've already done a lot of work in that uh, regard, you think? You know, you are, uh, you are incredibly insightful and you are, um, uh, you, your, 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 your question and your insight is, is spot on. Um, Thank you. So uh, uh, yes, Deming was worked primarily in the, in the manufacturing um, industry, if you will. Started out in Japan, obviously, yeah. and um, then came over here. And uh, you know, most of the reason the reason why half of us drive Japanese cars are because because of Deming. And um, but uh, I I have a hope that Deming. The whole concept of Deming or his 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 uh, his approach is uh, I hope there's going to be a resurgence of Deming because you're absolutely right. Um, manufacturing is it, you know process improvement in manufacturing is really pretty easy because you could see widgets go through a you know go through the assembly line and you could see you know raw materials get turned into into you know new mousetraps. You don't see that in an information age. Um, you know what's the raw materials? Of 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 a of a company in in that's in the information sector. Well, it's it's all in here. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that Deming said, and um, I used to be a fan of Deming. Well, now I'm a stark raving lunatic fan of Deming, <laughs> because his principles are have just as much value today as they did, you know, 25 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 50 years ago. Deming Deming said that the system will produce exactly what it's designed to produce not a, not not an exact quote but yeah um so you think about leadership and why do so many of our organizations even even organizations that that, that make a lot of money why do they have you know uh high turnover is it just stress i don't think so i think they i think it's they have high turnover because they have lousy cultures they may, they may make a ton of money, but what more could they be doing if they created cultures of, of collaboration with their employees, cultures of respect? They would, and you, and you, can't, you can't do that without intentionality and without a system. And so when Deming says that the system will produce what it's designed to produce, 
if the if the system produces chaos, if the system produces high uh, high employee turnover, it's doing exactly what it was designed to do. Maybe not intentionally, but it's doing what it was designed to do. So as Deming points out, you can change the system. The other thing Deming points out, I think he says that uh, was at ninety six percent of all problems. Uh, are there maybe it's like 92% of all problems are the result of the system. Yeah. So change the system. And in this country, especially, but around the world too, leadership is understood as me. It's understood as you, it's your personal leadership. It's my personal leadership and my personal leadership style. Well, Deming says, that's the problem right there. If you design the system so every leader is leading according to certain values and behaviors and they're modeling those behaviors, now you have the opportunity to scale mm -hmm. core values, to scale respect, to scale um, the way you develop your people, the way you develop, the way you innovate. You can scale that, again, from a team of 10 to a team of 10,000. But you have, yeah. you have to have a system to do that. It's incredible. I love that because when you were saying that, I just immediately thought about Steve Jobs' leadership at Apple. Mm -hmm. And when it ended, it had uh, devastating effects on the company. Um, and had they had a system in place instead of relying on just one iconic person, mm -hmm. uh, it would have been much better. And I think they're recovering really well. Still, yep. Apple products are just yep. amazing. Yep. Um, and uh, I'm just really glad your experience from the process improvement and lean um, joint forces with the leadership and you're actually providing the systemic value on mm -hmm. leadership and how to have impactful uh, engagement uh, on the company, your clients. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for your conversation today, uh, for um, sharing your great insights, uh, your experiments and, and the examples from the book. I encourage everyone uh, to check out the book on Amazon. We'll have some links on it. Yep. Um, and uh, good luck in your work. We wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Well, if any of your listeners, um, I have several free resources, um, one of which is, a, um, is an article on, um, actually there's several, but the one is on you know, how to engage the employees. It's the four strategies and how to engage employees and create that, that high engagement culture. And they just go to my resource page and it's available free for downloading.